0: Good morning. Now that you've been seated, please stand for the reading of God's word. (laughs) Stand. Hear the scripture. This will be our passage this morning. It's 1 Peter chapter 2. You stand both here and in the sanctuary. Verse 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the Word of God. Please be seated. So, as we begin this morning, let me give you my thesis so you'll know where I'm going in case you get lost or I get lost. My thesis is this, as we study 1 Peter chapter 2, to fight against those things, those attitudes that wage war against my soul or my usefulness or my happiness, my eternal welfare. I must continually taste the goodness of the Lord so that I can live in a way that honors Christ to my contemporaries. So, Uh, to wage war against those things that wage war against me, against you. I must taste, you must taste the goodness of Christ so that you can live an honorable life that preaches Christ by word and deed before your contemporaries. So the book of 1 Peter, in chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 10, Peter has been crying out, taste and see that the Lord is good. Behold the greatness of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Behold, he is the one who loves you with an everlasting love, who has given you an eternal blessed hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. He has given you an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and it will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. He is the one who, as he you, as you takes you through trials and difficult times, he will shape your character so that it will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He, he's the one who is, has who is done all of these things, who guards you by his power. You say, how, how can I complete this? He's guarding you by his power, the scripture says. And ultimately, he's the one who has appeared in the person of Christ In the fullness of time, the eternal God became a man. And the Old Testament prophets longed to see the coming Messiah, but they only dreamed of it and spoke of it, but we see it fully. These are things angels stand on tiptoes wanting to look into. Therefore, verse 13, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so he goes through... Behold the greatness of Christ. And now we come to section chapter 211 through chapter 411. This is all about applying the greatness of Christ to the way we live. And these two verses are kind of a, a banner statement. They're kind of an overarching theme for, for this part of the book. Beloved, beloved, I beseech you or I urge you to live as elect exiles or strangers and aliens on the earth. Now, i just going to stop here and just look at this word, beloved. It means dearly valued friends, people that I love intensely, beloved. And I look at this church and I go, in the body of Christ are there webs of relationships over which there are people that cry for my welfare by saying, dearly loved friends, valued friends, I appeal to you to live this way. Are there people, if you have any leadership, leading a small group, if you're an elder, a pastor, a deacon, if you're a man to man table, women's leader, if if you're mentoring people, we should look at the people that God has given us oversight over to a degree and we ought to cry out, beloved, Dearly valued, if I'm to go strong in my faith and go with resolute courage, I must have people in my life that cry over me, beloved, a godly spouse, godly children, godly friends. They say, say beloved, dearly valued friend, I appeal to you, I, I beseech you, I, I, I plead with you. Uh, do you have those people in your life? Are you so involved in a local church, the body of Christ, that there are elders and pastors that are praying over you, that long for your welfare? I've got to have, you've got to have that. In Galatians, for example, Galatians, Paul's writing this letter to the Galatians and They've embraced the gospel. Some false teachers have come in and said it's fine to believe in Jesus, but unless you do this, 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 and this, you cannot be saved. And Paul says that's a different gospel. In fact, that gospel is from the pit of hell. If anyone preaches that gospel, may he be condemned. I mean, it's strong language. And so you get to chapter 4, and Paul is pleading with these people. And he says in verse 12, he says, Brothers, I entreat you. Become as I am, for I also became as you are. He says, I entreat you, I plead to you. He says in verse 15, what then has happened to all of your joy? And the Apostle Paul, who, who one time was a legalist and, and believed all these things about, you've got to do this, this, and this, experienced the gospel of grace, and he got freed up. And he says, you know, when, when you live on the basis of, I've got to do, I've got to do, I've got to do, I've got to do, I'm going to earn my way to heaven, he says, you never can get there. But when you see that Jesus did it all for you, all those things he said are nothing more than a pile of, of, of really, of, of dung. It's a poo pile. Compared to the ecstasy of knowing Jesus in Philippians 3. He says, what's happened to all your joy? And then he says this. He says, my, my, my little children... For whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. What I'm saying is there should be people in our lives who say, I am willing to go through the anguish of childbirth until Jesus is rich in your life. Until you get it and you're growing. Prayed with a woman earlier this morning. Just saw another good friend come in. They're going to have babies this week. Thank God for epidurals. But in this this day, anguish and childbirth were really synonyms, a lot of anguish, a lot of pain. And that's what it means to love people. And my question is, are there people in your life, in the Lord, over you who say, I am pleading for your welfare. I'm willing to go to the wall for you. That's what Peter says here, beloved, beloved. I, mean, I, 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 I need that. Who cries out beloved over you? Webs of relationships. Listen to me. It's possible to be involved in a church. Really really involved, I think. And have terminally casual relationships that never deal with yourself. When you come in, so I do this. I'm coming Sunday, hey man, great game yesterday. Way to go, man. This is really, really good stuff. Yeah, that that's okay. You've got to be able to talk about sports and the weather and, you know, where you're going to have lunch or whatever. That, that's part of it. You can always just come in and. But, but listen to me. Are there people in your life that you can really, really know your heart? It's just, beloved, beloved, I, 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 I plead with you to understand there are issues that wage war against your soul. We rejoice in academic accomplishments. We rejoice in, 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 in musical accomplishments and sports. We rejoice in this. There's nothing wrong with that. They're all gifts from the Lord, and we're thankful. But we need to have people in our life who say, man, I am, I, I, I'm tuned in the fact that there is a spiritual battle going on, and there are forces that, that are waging war against you, and we've got to fight hard. And, and and that's that's who we are as parents, as grandparents, as community group leaders, as elders, as pastors, this is who we are. And then the reference point here, and I love this, the reference point in this text that we didn't really get to hit much last week, but he, he talks about the fact that they're living stones, they're chosen people, they're a royal priesthood, they're a holy nation, of people belonging to God. And then he says this in verse 10. It says, It's the once but now. Listen. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We've got to live in the once and the now relationship. Uh, Amazing grace written by a former slave trader, a profligate, immoral man, John Newton. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. I've got to always run to the once but now gospel that rescues and restores. Colossians chapter two. The apostle Paul says this, verse 21. For you were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but he has now reconciled you In his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. So, so the reference point is to rejoice, rejoice, brothers and sisters, in the once but now relationship of the gospel. Don't forget, don't forget the deep hole out of which God has saved you if you're a believer. Now, once we get to heaven, we're going to understand that we're going down this road, but God hemmed us in and kept us from making a really bad mistake. Or, or once we fell off, he, he, he brought us back in. And he did this, and he did that, and he did this. And he's a glorious father, son, and Holy Spirit that watches over us. I told the man-to-man man, man, a few weeks ago, I said, you know, you think about this. Think about the country music from years ago. A guy goes to his high school reunion, and he sees who he could have married, and he writes a song that says, thank God for unanswered prayer, you know. Ever felt that way? I I could have gone there, but God hemmed me in. So Friday morning, nine o'clock, every week, starting about four weeks ago, is one of my happy times of the week for me. So get up Friday morning early, go to man to man, usually have an appointment afterwards, study for a little bit, but then at nine o'clock, I go out here and my wife, brings two grand boys. She drives and we kind of do the pass off and I've got a two-year-old grandson and so I pick him up and I take him to school. He goes to school one day a week for three hours. It's, school is really broad, broad term for a two-year-old but he goes to school and um, this past Friday I met him out there and my wife has his four-month-old brother holding, holding him and I've got the two-year-old and I put him down and all of a sudden he's engulfed with eight or seven or eight other kids, about two or three years old and they're laughing and and they're walking in, you know, with very unsturdy gait and I'm behind him and I'm, I'm I'm even filming it, you know. Thank God for, for these iPhones. You know, I'm filming and I'm going, man, this is so cool. And, and, uh, and then my grandson does a nosedive. for some tripping over something, something falls on the concrete. And uh, so I pick him up. And this, this is the thought that hit me. All these beautiful children. The thought that hit me was out of Ephesians chapter 2. And you were by nature children of wrath. How's that for positive thought on Friday morning behind a bunch of two-year-olds? Ephesians 2, you were dead in your sins. And you were by nature children of wrath. And I just prayed a prayer as I walked. I I said, Father, do not let me ever forget that no matter how beautiful and wonderful these children are and they're made in your image and I rejoice in that, they need a savior to rescue and restore them. They need to know the reality of Christ because they are by nature under judgment because they're sinners. So, so don't, don't ever forget the, the deep hole out of which the Lord saves you. So let's go to the text now. I'm gonna answer this question. How do we fight against that which wages war against our souls, against your soul? Number one, again, continuously taste the goodness of, of the living God and verse two says as you taste you will long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you can grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good so here's the pattern you 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 long you have need you taste you long again and you want to go deeper into the light You long and you taste and you long and you taste and that's that's what you you grow. You're you're, you're restored, you're renewed. That's and the question I have as I've read this text, I ask you, are you tasting the goodness of the Lord? And I'm so glad that there is a word here in verse 3, and it is taste. It is an experiential word. Because it's it's easy to lose the balance. I mean, sometimes some of us love systematic theology. I love systematic theology. I I love this stuff. But man, we come to Romans twelve, verse two. That says, "Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind." And so he said, "Man, we got to we got to think well." And I said, "I say, Amen a thousand times." We've got to think well, we've got to know the terms, we've got to be good thinkers as, as we walk in this culture. Or we go to Ephesians chapter four, and Paul says that, that you no longer walk as the Gentiles do, verse 17, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their heart. But that is not the way you learned Christ. And so you say, learn, think, understanding. Learn, think, understand. Absolutely. But please hear me. It's balanced by experiencing the sweetness and the grandeur of Christ. Tasting. Are you tasting the goodness of the Lord? I'm not saying, are you learning this or learning that? That, 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 That's very good. I believe in that. But I I want to taste. And I think Peter pointedly says here, taste. And so so this this is one of the things that came away from this text. The the, the fight to see, or to fight the good fight, I must taste taste are you experiencing the reality of Christ Jesus says love the Lord your God with all of your heart mind soul and strength the the totality of all that you are and so I, I, I I want to plead with you I plead with me that I want to so taste the goodness of Christ that as the hymn says the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace are you tasting the goodness of the Lord? There's a quote from John Calvin. Died in 1564, the same year Shakespeare was born, I think. Anyway, this is what Calvin says. It's in the worship guide. I'm gonna give you part of it right here. Calvin says, the principal hinge, strong statement. The principal hinge on which faith turns is this. We must not suppose that any promises of mercy which the Lord offers are only true out of us and not in us. We should rather make them ours by inwardly embracing them a true believer is one who experiences God as kindly and a well-disposed father. And he says, you know, the, the, the issue is that, that we see God's promises outside of us, but he says you got to see them inside of you. It's got to be a matter of, of personal pronouns that God loves me. Died he for me who caused him pain. For me. So tasting the goodness of the Lord. I've got to taste it. The second thing I've got to realize the text says that I am indeed an alien and an exile. We're a stranger and a sojourner. That my ultimate home is in glory. That this world is passing. It's like a vapor. And, and that which wages war against my soul and my happiness and my usefulness is people saying, This is all there is. And this is all you ever have. This is it. So, just a couple points under this. Number one is. I want you to understand the historical situation that surrounds First Peter. Now I'm gonna read from a book entitled the, the, Christian, the Church in the Second Century. It's a wonderful book published by InterVarsity Press. And just, just listen, aristocratic Christian women in the second century and first century church so outnumbered aristocratic Christian men that they were often unable to find a spouse unless they were willing to marry someone from a lower class. Some, th- some things never change; still, still goes on, goes on today. That's a joke, okay? Uh, just to, so, so you think two thirds of the of the church were made up of women in the first century, and you you've heard people say this. You go to a wedding, you always hear someone say, well, not always, but usually hear someone say, Boy, he outpunted his coverage. And you may laugh. Let me explain that to you, just so you'll know what they're saying. So let's say a punt, let's say a good punt's 45 yards, hang time, five seconds. So you punt, your, your line runs down, they surround the guy receiving the ball. Fair catch. When you outpunt your coverage, you punt it so far that your line can't get down there to cover it. You you kicked it too far. So when someone outpunts their coverage, they've done way better than they should have. So so there's some people here who are married who, who instead of kicking it 40 yards, they kicked it about 70 yards. There's some people here, when they got married, the guys punted it 100 yards. Some of you guys, especially right here, Put it 120 yards, man, out of the stadium. You know what I mean? So that's what that's what that means. So that's you can explain that. Now, let me read what this book says. Women had a very favorable place in the early church. That would have included opportunities for ministry, involvement with honor and dignity, the condemnation of female infanticide. In the day of the early church, uh, Young girls were often taken and just left on the side of a hill. They they starved to death or were picked up and and raised as prostitutes. Very common. Um, Fewer marriages with child brides. Oftentimes a very, very young child girl married an older man. Lack of abortion which resulted in greater fertility and healthier marriages where divorce was condemned and the use of prostitutes or concubines forbidden in the church, which also resulted in greater fertility in Christian couples. Now listen to this. This last feature of early Christianity is worth exploring a little further. It is well known that the Greco-Roman world, married married men in that world were allowed to a great deal of sexual latitude. I'm gonna to try to make this PG-13, but it's just listen to me. They could have relations with slaves, concubines, and even prostitutes, whereas the wives were expected to remain faithful to their husbands. A historian from that day wrote the following. His name was Demosthenes, quote, "'We have mistresses for our enjoyment, sexually, "'concubines to serve our person every day, but we have lawful wives for bearing of legitimate offspring and to be faithful guardians of the household, close quote. So, so when you came along as a believer and you said, well, listen, Jesus affirms what was given on Sinai, that, that sex is a good gift from God, but it's for marriage between a man and a woman. Man, you were outside of the mainstream. And he gave dignity to women, but these men said, wait a minute. That's not what we signed up for. So so let me say this very gently, but I want you to hear me. We are approaching living in the same environment that shaped the days of the first and second century. Today in our world, the only barrier between any type of sexuality is mere consent. So we don't affirm the Harvey Weinsteins, of course. But outside of that, Anything goes. And that's why I want to look at our young people and they're, trying, and they're living valiantly for Christ. Man, I want to embrace them, give them a high five and say, thank you. I was on a website this week and I can't go into detail. It was a conservative website. I'm just scrolling through the news, just scrolling down. And there was an article in there about a married couple and what they did that was perverse, Perverted. And I read the article. I said to my wife, Look at this. And I read the article, and it, it dealt with a situation that should not be spoken of among adult married people. It just shouldn't be spoken of. It should cause us to blush and be ashamed. And, and I'm sitting there, and I, I say to Sarah, I said, You know, you're eight years old, and you pick up an iPhone or an iPad, or and you just this is a conservative website. This is a wild and crazy website, or us. This is a conservative. And you type it in, you scroll down. Boom. And I, I thought, thought, we are living, and you've got, you've got to be, have people around you who are loving you and encouraging you, brothers and sisters. You can't float into this stuff. Parents, you've got to watch over your kids who's teaching them and coaching them and loving them and mentoring them and, and, and one another. We, can't let our, we, can, we cannot let down the watch. I'm pleading with you. So 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 this is, we are indeed aliens and exiles in this culture. And and then as you read the text, what's interesting is is, is that as you live differently, this is what's going to happen. Verse 12. It says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles or the nations so honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, that can be translated criminals. (laughs) They're, They're evildoers. They're weird. They're bizarre. Chapter 4, verse 4, a major statement on this whole book. So they talk about the slide into debauchery and immorality and drunkenness and whatever. Verse 4 of chapter 4 says, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery or dissipation, drunkenness, immorality, and they malign you. They, they go, you're weird. They socially push you to the side. They, they, Man, where did you come from? You don't join in this behavior? You're an alien and an exile. So these guys, in the last century, you got Joseph Stalin, Pol Pot in Cambodia, Adolf Hitler in Germany, and Mao Zedong, China. All of these men hated the Christian faith, despised it. Stalin, his last act before he died, his daughter's sitting there with her dad. He's 1953, he's dying. Stalin breathes deeply, puts himself up on his arm, and he shakes his fist into the heavens, and he dies. I mean, the last act of this guy is flipping God off. The Nazis said, it's fine if you have a church. It's fine to have a cross on the altar, but the altar must be behind the swastika. And there are many German Christians that said, no problem. Thankfully, many of them said, over my dead body. You see, the reason totalitarians of any stripe hate Christians eventually is because they can't control Christians. See, we have a higher authority than the state. More about that next week. We have a higher authority than the state. And that's the Christ. And so, so the state comes along, these, 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 these men who murdered millions and millions and millions of people. I mean, millions. And it's, it's happening today in China. I mean, don't, don't kid yourself. I mean, Mr. Mr. Xi may wear $3,000 Italian suits. But, but they're, they're persecuting anybody that doesn't say the state is supreme. You can go to the early church, you read the, the history about the early church and, and the, the, the early church was, was persecuted by the Greco-Roman Empire because they would not say Caesar is Lord. And that the people in the Roman Empire didn't believe that Caesar made the heavens and the earth. They just believed that, 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 that the leader of their state must have the ultimate authority in their life and Christians say, that's not gonna happen. That's not gonna happen. And, and so... We don't bow down to idols, where the idol is the state or whatever. We just don't don't do that. And so the state looks at believers and says, if you don't do this, we'll put you in prison. It might happen. If you don't do this, we'll kill you. You say, well, can I just tell you something? Sure. My Savior said, don't fear the person that can just kill your body. You fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. We have a higher authority than the state. And people who make idols and say this is supreme have a hard time with the Christian faith because Jesus Christ is Lord. Let me give you one example. There's a lot of examples. Mentioned last week the family, how wonderful the family is. To a point, you're in a family, you have family get-togethers, and you've got an uncle who's, who gets drunk every night. He's been an alcoholic for 40 years, no repentance, no sense of trying to change, no, no, I need to get this. And, and so you, you become a believer and you start reading the Bible and you pick up 1 Corinthians and it says that people who are habitually given to substance abuse without repentance, people go in and out, I know that, but without repentance, have no hope of eternity, no hope for salvation. You just don't. And so you say to your parents, maybe it's your dad's brother, we, we need to talk to Uncle John, Dad. I mean, Uncle, Uncle John gets drunk every night, and we just kind of support him and give him money, and never we, we just let it go just to keep peace in the family. And your dad says, if we deal with Uncle John, then people will be mad at us, and our family equilibrium will be disrupted. And you know what you say? You say, excuse me, but I've got to obey God, not man. I will not kowtow to the idol of family solidarity. You see what I'm saying? They do it in grace and dignity. One step further. I mean, I just I look at our young people and I think, man. We live in a time of rapid change, guys. I mean, things that were unheard of 10 years ago were now asked to celebrate. I mean, it's amazing to me. I'm an old guy, so I can remember the three days of yesteryear. And it's, it's wild. So it's, this is coming, this is going to happen. And God bless you when it happens. Maybe I'll be dead and I will not have to worry about this. But in your family, you have an aunt or an uncle. And they declare that they have a same-sex attraction. And we love them and we care for them and we embrace them. We, 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 we. But then they go step further and they said, Ann, I'm going to bring my partner home, and, and we're going to get married, and we want you to come to the wedding, and we want you to celebrate with us, and, and they come, and the family gets together, and, and they try to celebrate, and they say, are you going to go to the wedding, and listen, my personal opinions, I, I, I can't, I, I can't, because if I go to the wedding, I kind of sort of say, I affirm this, and the Bible speaks against it, and the family says, if you do this, you will disrupt our family. If you do this you no know, listen have you ever heard the term blood is thicker than water and you're thinking in your mind have you ever heard the term that comes from the pit of hell <laughs> i have a higher i have a higher allegiance than to family solidarity or to making people feel good and that is to serve Christ. Now I'm going to do it with brokenness and love and I'm going to, I'm going to have them in my house and feed them and I'll maybe even give them a wedding gift. I See what I'm saying? I, I just think that, that, that whenever a person makes an idol of anything and they say this idol is supreme, they violated the scripture. So number three. This is, involves an ongoing warfare. Uh, th- there's a guy named... George Mueller, I love George Mueller. He's a great man, lived in the 1800s, German who came to England and supported 2,000 orphans, and he was a man of prayer. I love George Mueller. I love the little biography, George Mueller of Bristol by Pearson. It's a great little biography. Here's here's a quote that people give, and I wish George Mueller had not said this because I think he was misunderstood by us, I'll tell you why. But this is what he said. There was a day, there came a day when I died, Utterly died to George Mueller. His opinions, preferences, taste, and will. Die to the world, its approval or censure. Die to the approval or the blame even of my brothers and friends. And since then I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. Now here, here's my problem. You can read that statement. The same, there is a time and experience when you die to the pull of the world and the desire to be loved and liked by people I don't believe that day ever gets here to get to heaven I think that you and I will fight not being applauded and loved and embraced by a worldly system we're going to fight with sin to the day we die so what I'm saying is this is an ongoing warfare there, there's not a day we say, well, I've, I've arrived. I don't have, I don't struggle with, with uh, being disliked by the guys in my fraternity, the guys in my sorority or the people in my company or the people I work with. It's no big deal. It's like water off a duck's back. I care what people think and say. I gotta be honest with you. I wish I did not. But I do. So I've got to step back and say, Lord, help me. This, this battle, church, is ongoing. It's, it's unrelenting. It never knows an end. Very quickly, there's a cycle here. I was studying Psalm 107, which talks about four different times in this psalm. The psalmist says, I was in distress and. So it's in the worship guide, starting verse 17. Some were fools who lived as if there was no God. Some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities, they suffered afflictions. So they denied the existence of God in the way they lived, and they suffered, they suffered for it. Afflictions. They, they, they loathed any kind of food. I don't know what all this means. They lost their taste for food, they lost their, the joy in life, and, and, and they drew near to the gates of death. So become fools. That describes all of us at times. Many of us are in the full cycle now. We really are. So, so the full cycle, verse 19, then they cried to the Lord Jehovah in their trouble and he delivered them out of their distress. So fools, you see your distress, you cry, God delivers you. And listen, he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. So Fools, distress, healing. Fools, distress, healing. That's the way God, God restores. It's, it's an ongoing. Brothers and sisters, I have been a fool many times. And I taste my foolishness. And then I said, God have mercy on me for for, for, for an unforgiving spirit. For being bitter in my heart, for being for lustful attitudes. God have mercy on me for treating my wife with not great respect, for demanding of her. God have mercy on me for really not being a good friend. Just Restore me, take your word. See, I prayed this morning with some people. We pray that people would not leave here today unchallenged or not encouraged. See, when you read the word, challenged, challenged. Fool, distress. God heals you by his word. It's ongoing. So I, I look at this, this alien exile issue, this, this thing with the world is ongoing. And then next, next point, number four, we must know the battleground. Go to go through this real fast. You must know the battleground. A, a key verse here is in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. The Bible says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. For all that is in this fallen worldly system, in this world, three broad areas the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the fallen worldly system. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. So, here, the, John says, here's, here's the battleground. Broadly speaking, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Now, we, we talk a lot, I think, I know I do, about the lust of the flesh. Boom, it's just there. It's just there. The thinking thoughts you shouldn't think, going places you shouldn't go with your eyes to your mind. That, 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 that wages war against your soul. Understood. Lust of the eyes. What's the lust of the eyes? Listen. The lust of the eyes is wanting to have more and more and never being satisfied. The lust of the eyes is you're already in bad debt, but you do you, you, you buy this or this or that with credit card debt at only 19.5% interest and you never can climb out and you want to have more and more and more. I get the Wall Street Journal uh, Friday, there's a, always a, something in the Wall Street Journal about, about uh, homes for sale. And they'll go to key neighborhoods all over the nation, usually in California, San Francisco, New York, or places like Atlanta or sometimes Charleston, believe it or not. And they, they'll have this, this, these homes. Some of them are, have, have, have uh, 16 bedrooms and 20 bathrooms on 20 acres. And you can get it for $9.5 million dollars. 12 million dollars. Or this home was owned by this star and now it's for sale in Manhattan. And it gives a price tag. And I read it and shake my head and says, give me a break. Really give me a break. Who needs this? And you know, I'm saying I'm saying one thing that, that that really impacts this city, us, is the upwardly mobile wanting more and more and more. And these things, listen, wage war against your soul. And then the pride of life. The pride of life is nothing more than meism. It's all about me. I'm better looking, more talented, more successful than those people, the hoi polloi, the, the common people. This is all about me. You see, and see, the Bible says these things wage war against your soul. Fifth point, very quickly from the text. He says this, and this is really good. This is really good. He says, live such good lives among the nations so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, I've read this many times, and I thought the day of visitation referred to the second coming of Christ, and it can refer to that. But there are many expositors and teachers, including John Calvin and a guy named Wayne Grudem in the present context, who say the day of visitation refers to the day that God visits people with His salvation poured into their heart. I love that. So so he he says, live such a good, observable life, and you speak the gospel with such grace and kindness. Chapter 3, verse 15. You speak the gospel such grace and kindness that that when God visits them with his salvation and he shows them the greatness and the glory of Christ, they will see your good works and say, thank you for living it out. Thank you for living it out. Example. Read a biography of a guy named William Cooper, who was a great hymnist in the 18th century, uh, wrote a lot of poems, an evangelical. His best friend was John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. William Cooper dealt with depression his whole life. I'm not talking about mild depression. Black hole depression. Before he was saved and after he was saved. He he tried to commit suicide at least seven times. Uh, as a young man, his mother died when he was six. He lost three siblings in the next three years and his dad died when he was nine. He had a life of sorrow. Brilliant, went to depression. They sent him into an asylum where he was restrained during the during the day and put in a padded room and there was a, the man in charge of the asylum was a gospel-loving, Bible-teaching man. And he would sit with William Cooper and he would read the Bible to him. And he would talk about the promises of Christ. And William Cooper would go into a cell and there would be an open Bible laying on his bed with a piece of paper pointing to a particular verse. And this guy kept speaking of Christ. And, And then Cooper, here's his testimony. This is beautiful. He said, as I heard the words of my friend, and as he spoke of the richness of Christ and the forgiveness of sin, My mind went back to conversations I had years before with my cousin about the goodness of the gospel of Christ. And I believed. Hear that? I believed. So this, you you live and you preach in such a way that people hear the gospel in your mouth and by your actions. Example, you go out to eat today and there's a wait person there, wait staff, and they're taking your order. And you start to, not a lot of people there, they're talking to you and, and you go, hey, I, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, uh, we're talking about a spiritual person. What is a spiritual person to you? And you go, oh, wow, good question. A Spiritual person would be somebody who is really in touch with eternity. So oh, that's a pretty good answer. Can I tell you what I believe a spiritual person is? Yes, we believe a spiritual person, biblically defined, is someone who understands that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh and he lived a perfect life and died on the cross for our sins. Fulfilling the Old Testament sacrificial law, if you want to go into that, because the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him we not perish, we we'll have eternal life. If we believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, we have eternal life. And that's, that's the way you make, you're, you're saved. You have a relationship with God and your weight staff goes something like this. You know, my grandmama taught me that. My grandmama took me to something called Vacation Bible School. I just kind of dismissed it, but I've been going through a hard time lately and what you just said makes sense. God opens the heart. God opens the heart. And what I'm saying to you is, is don't ever give up. Someone, I'll tell you this, went to school with a bunch of guys that I, I became a believer in my freshman year, got really involved and really kind of jumped in. Invited people to Bible study. Talked about Christ. Some people made fun of me. Oh, here we, come. Here we go again. Here we go again, that type of thing. 15, 20 years later, I get a phone call. You know, Buster, I believe the gospel. I've become a Christian. I said, Praise God. See, it doesn't return void, is what I'm saying. The the glorious statement in this passage, listen, he says, live a life that speaks of Christ and teaches Christ in such a way that on the day of visitation, when the Holy Spirit comes down and and ministers to them, they will say, you know, that person really spoke it out and that person really lived it out. Man, go for it. Go for it. We know that that sometimes, usually a person believes the gospel. They say, the 23rd to 35th time they hear it. So this today may be the third time you've heard it. So I'm telling your friends sitting around you, said to them today again, that's four, next Tuesday, five, Wednesday, seven, just keep on going because God's word is powerful. Beloved, I beseech you by the mercies of God to understand you're to live as aliens and exiles, so that you can present Christ to those around you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the day and for the simple reality of opening the Bible and understanding what it says. So teach us and show us yourself in power and grace. Lord, I, I pray for all of us that we have friends and coworkers and classmates and, and, and folks in our neighborhood that don't know you. I pray that we would be consistent and loving and caring and opening our homes and opening our lives and just loving folks and speaking Christ when we're around them. So thank you for that, and thank you for the mercy of the gospel. Thank you for for saving us. Thank you that we once were not the people of God, but now we are. We once were blind, but now we see. Once we were not of mercy, but now we are because of Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.